2: That's the second time it's done off. They never got home, they never got home, they never got home those guys. Those,
3: those and I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad.
4: So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. You might have
1: thought that the Tour de France would take a few years to recover from the confirmation that its greatest ever champion cheated his way to all seven of his victories. That only happened, the confirmation, that is, earlier this year, hard enough as that is to believe. But in fact, the TV viewership for this year's tour has gone up by 50% on last year. And judging by the coverage, there was a healthy attendance along the roads and up the mountains and just about everywhere. I did spend the last three weeks just trying to work out how this race could be getting more popular rather than less. And then it hit me. It doesn't actually matter if the outcome is plausible, if the winner is believable. What matters is the entertainment. What we're watching here, Ken, is WWE wrestling at its finest. It's just transported on into the beautiful landscapes of France. And yeah, elsewhere.
5: definitely. There's, there's some of the kind of narrative structures of WWE seem to have been transplanted into this uh, into this sporting event. So, I, I mean, I still, I think it remains, Owen, even if every rider out there was doping, a more credible. Uh, more credible as a sporting spectacle uh, than WWE, WWE, you know, whatever the final letter is. Um, but yeah, there, there, there's certainly uh, a few additional storylines, which, uh, I mean, not so who's, all, all who's, publicity is good publicity. Well, you have
1: your pantomime villain, Murph. Yeah, who's Chris Froome in this? So? Probably Andre the Giant, but he's achieving his inevitable victory, not before facing down the baying mob. Uh, also getting involved in physical altercation with fans carrying giant toy syringes. I'm not sure if that exact thing has happened in wrestling, but something similar <laughs> probably. And you've got your manager as well, Dave Brailsford, fighting your corner. That's a classic cornerstone mm. of the, you know, the likes of Jimmy Hart. You, in, you've in the you've Hart been Foundation, really caught up with that. I mean, kind you've, of thing. you've put a There's lot a of lot blood blood into power it. Into it's possibly more ridiculous again, Ken, because the crowds decided they had to be somewhat outrageous this year, more so than usual. We, I got a tweet from Brian Duggan <laughs> alerting us, thanks very much to this, to an incident on the Alpe d'Huez. A lot of the incidents have been talked about. I don't know if this one, if the full detail of this one had been clear before. I certainly hadn't been aware of it, so thanks to Brian for this. Oh,
5: just uh, this couple of photographs of this were just brilliant. Uh, these guys who evidently were not fans of Chris Froome, I don't know who they were supporting in the race, but they felt like they wanted to make a point by getting dressed up like surgeons for some reason, as though uh, surgical enhancement was Mm -hmm. now part of the game. So they're wearing these sort of uh, scrubs, uh, you know, surgical masks and all the rest of it, and are all set for when the target of their anger comes around the bend that they are going to be there and, uh, you know, the, the full Eeyore scrubbed up and ready to go but a, a bunch of firm fans see them and physically grab them and bundle them into a van where they're trapped and plaintively banging on the windows. You can see them, these guys still wearing their surgical masks as they're, as they're sort of pressing their faces and hands against the window, trying to escape the stunt that they've spent months planning is now completely useless because the cyclists are passing by and they're just plaintively, no, banging on the <laughs> Imagine putting that much thought into it and then being stuck in a van.
6: Yeah, it's like being literally thrown into a van. I mean, that's... I mean, it's kind of harsh, really. Yeah, it was it's harsh.
5: You know, we've seen that kind of thing, you know. The, the uh, spectators, drunk spectators, you know, attacking the the Sky team. Uh, at one point, I saw a video of this. You know, it's kind of incredible stuff. Yeah, it's not just the you, you know these idiots who who are who run along sometimes getting in the the guy's way or you know spraying them with spraying them with urine as Mark Cavendish was spraying them. You know, Chris Froome talks about being sprayed with some stuff, and he's paranoid that what if there's some product in it? He says product. Uh, so he was, gives was the, the intruder used, a good belt in came, that case. Go smack, but yeah, a, certainly the fans are showing very little respect.
1: Murph, we were in Monaghan doing a show a few years back. Uh, with the plan at the time being that we'd be there to celebrate with them their 2010 Ulster mm. final victory over Throne, I think it was. it yeah. didn't quite work out. Uh, they were quite shell shocked about the whole thing. I remember all the fans in Monaghan that day. Uh, probably
6: a happier scene up there. To imagine the last few days. Yeah, well they'd worked themselves up into quite a lather uh, in 2010. There's no doubt about that. And the an- sense of anti climax that we came up to to see the following Monday was uh, well, it was a cautionary tale. We vowed never to do that ever again to try and predict the uh, result of a of a, of a provincial final and then base an entire show around that. <laughs> uh, Always do previews, That's but a- uh, we were driving in through. Um, uh, into Monaghan town, as I recall, and there were just sign after sign after sign of you know, come on, the Farney Army, all the rest of this. And I was like, oh my God, this is going to be a graveyard. Uh, but in fairness, they had they had built themselves up, and they thought that they had a real chance that day. So I mean, I, I suppose it's only understandable going into the game last Sunday against the All Ireland champions Donegal goal, No one gave them a snowball's chance in hell, and in a lot of ways, isn't that? isn't that even better? When you win under those circumstances, that's really just uh, the, the, the perfect way to win your first Ulster title since 1988. But uh, obviously, it put us all to thinking of past great feats by Monaghan men in uh, the sporting arena. And as we listened to the Northern Sound commentary by Alan Gunn, it became clear that there certainly were echoes of the clonest cyclone Barry McGuigan. Have a listen to Barry's interview after the Eusebio-Pedroza fight all those many years ago and try and decipher when it, Turns into from Barry McGregor, into commentary from last Sunday's Ulster final.
4: Mr. Eastwood here, who's, who's taken me from the world goal to the professional game, and I'm absolutely delighted. Oh, good God, I'm so pleased. No disrespect to the 1988 team, this means so, so much to the county. I'm so delighted to have beaten a, a renowned champion so well. Yeah,
6: Hold uh, on a second I thought you said at one stage it was going to move off by McQua going to go s- to commentary of- that's that's where you're wrong old spotter's badge if you can find it second time around
4: Mr. Eastwood here who's who's taken me from the world goal to the possession game and I'm absolutely delighted oh good have I'm so pleased no disrespect to the 1988 thing this means so so much to the county I'm so delighted to have beaten that a renowned
1: champion so well I'm not not getting it there's there's not even a shift in cadence or anything that I can it's quite something right, isn't it we're going to talk to Dick Clerken a little bit later on about Monaghan's victory one of their legendary players who was on the field on Sunday there'll be plenty of Premier League previews in the next few weeks I would imagine as people start building up for the new season but there's a sideshow battle that's going to go on next year Ken Sky Sports versus BT Sport oh and
5: this is a chance for television executives who don't often get the chance to Play mind games against each other, uh, to to do that to to sort of infuse the uh, football this month of July with all of this warrior <laughs> rhetoric which we're hearing from them. Um, you know, uh, we heard. Uh, I, I think it was actually the Daily Mail uh, mm-hmm. who obviously followed this Charles Sale being being their man who who tends to cover these types of stories, um, and the Daily Mail infused the line. A strangle at birth policy. Oh, in
1: Sky picking all the their big matches early on to stop BT getting out of steam. Up
5: that Sky have uh, Sky are going to strangle BT (laughs) at birth.
6: I mean, it's quite a phrase. It's quite evocative. It is. I mean, it's, a, it's a cold. It's, it's a cold pretty, metaphor. Yeah, pretty harsh. Like,
5: what was it Carl uh, Mannion said on this show a couple of weeks back?
6: Oh, he. Oh, yeah, he was talking about uh, Trinity. in Trinity, and he called it the lesser-fed child. Which is, <laughs> if, you child. It, if you think about it, the more you think about it, the more morbid it gets.
5: Is that actually a, a, a thing people say, is West that, of the Shannon? Is I'm, that, is that a, a, a commonly observed anyway, social Sky, phenomenon? Anyway, BT, come on. Um, I have to say I hadn't heard it. That we can't be strangled at birth, say uh, BT, because they are a twenty-two billion pound gorilla uh, in Sky's words, which is, it's pretty difficult to do that. So, uh, you know, they're, these
6: you couldn't t- strangle a baby gorilla if you tried, Ken. Basically, is what he's trying to say. A twenty-two
5: right? billion pound gorilla is actually quite a big one as well. So these uh, companies are at war. The winner is football, uh, because that it means that what with what these companies competing. To, to put money into the game that between between Sky and BT they're, they're both contributing or they're contributing more than a billion pounds a season now in terms of TV rights money. The question though, I suppose, is given that the Premier League is already the richest league in Europe and doesn't seem to be the best, does the money actually make English football stupid? Well,
1: Ask that question a little bit later on. We're going to talk about the hurling season so far. The greatest ever has been bandied about uh, as a label. Derek Ling and Dermot Sullivan going to be on the show ahead of a couple of big games. The quarterfinals coming up on Sunday. Just to remind you, or let you know indeed, that there's a special show, special Second Captains at the Irish Times, which will be online for you this Friday. Uh, we'll be recording our big night on Thursday. Yeah. This is very exciting stuff. Yeah, it is very exciting. Oh, yeah. We can't wait. Second to captain's live at right the Grand Social in Dublin with the likes of Eamon Dunphy, Richard Sadler. Yeah. What no, a GA line up there.
6: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have a brilliant one, Ushi McConville, Anthony Moyles, Jason Sherlock. I mean, it's it's going it's to be fairly. brilliant. And, the great thing as well is we can confirm that none of us has spouted any ridiculous facial hair, no major physical changes since our last outside broadcast, so we're still very much the same people. If you have
1: tickets, we look forward to seeing you there. If not, we look forward to playing that out for you on Friday. Uh, we do want to move on, though, because Chris Froome's Tour de France victory is in the record books now. It's up to you if you choose to put an asterisk beside it. That's the question a lot of people are having to decide, really, an answer to. But David Walsh feels there's no need to do that. His piece in the Sunday Times... Is accompanied by the banner headline "Why I Believe in Chris Froome." Whether you're convinced by this argument or not, it is an important article. I think in the debate around this year's Tour de France, it's certainly always worth reading. What David Walsh has to say about these. Things. David
5: Walsh uh, has been, I suppose, the you know, is currently journalist of the year, and not not sports journalist of the year, journalist of the year in the UK because of his work uh, on the Lance Armstrong story. You know, would would be considered a world authority in this area. So, uh, rather not Chris Froome, David Walsh has essentially been embedded with the Sky team, uh, Team Sky, uh, I should call them, during the Tour de France, and he's had the opportunity to observe at close quarters what they do and talk to the people involved. So you would imagine that when he's come to this conclusion, you know, there's a fair amount of information and obviously many years of expertise and judgment. Behind his conclusion,
1: we're joined by Paul Cambridge to talk about a, bit, a little bit about this. Paul, thanks very much, first of all, for uh, for talking to us. We haven't chatted to you for a few weeks. Did you enjoy your experience uh, in France this year?
7: Well, I've had uh, I've had a documentary crew following me around for the last four weeks. It made it uh, extremely stressful at times, uh, very unusual, but also very enjoyable. There were three great lads, and uh, yeah, it was uh, it was very different. Anyway. Um, but also, uh, yeah, it was enjoyable. I did enjoy it.
1: Yeah, staying in a camper van with three grown men, living the dream over there, Paul.
7: <laughs> well, I actually uh, I got a message from Greg Lamond on um, Sunday morning, and uh, he told me, called up and said he was staying in an apartment and, uh, near the Arc de Triomphe, and he asked me where I was. And I said, well, I'm in a campsite in the Bois de Boulogne, <laughs> and uh, the Baud de Boulogne is known for many things, uh, not for camping, but uh, he got a good laugh out of that.
1: Listen to us, I want want to put a quote to you from David Walsh. This is how David signed off his Sunday Times piece, this Sunday just gone. As for the mob reaction on Thursday, it was a reminder of how Lance Armstrong was regarded. Once he was the most loved sportsman on the planet, partly because of that betrayal, the mob was baying for Froome's blood on the Alp. They were wrong when Armstrong was winning. They're wrong about Froome. History will correct this, as it did the Armstrong story. Is the mob wrong again, do you think?
7: Well, the question I would ask uh, David is, who are the mob? And, you know, maybe they are fans who genuinely believed in Armstrong but have been betrayed and are not going to have that, uh, their tummies tickled again. And, does the mob include people like myself? Does it include uh, physiologists? Does it include doctors? Does it include all of those people who have genuine reservations about Froome's performance? Um, So, I was a bit surprised at the generalisation and, uh, yeah, um, I found it insulting in some ways, I've got to be honest. Have you had
1: a chance to actually talk to David about it, to debate it out?
7: Uh, well, I don't regard it as, a, as an issue of debate. David is uh, more than entitled to his opinion. Um, and you know, you know, the piece he wrote on Sunday, why I believe in Chris Froome, the headline, was fine. I mean, we're all entitled to our opinion. But when a paper runs a headline like that, There has to be a potential for the opposite. In other words, why I do not believe in Chris Froome. Mm. Now, whether David held that belief, if he had held that belief, would the newspaper have run that piece? I don't believe it would. I don't believe it would because last year, the Sunday Times, not once did he ask one question about Bradley Wiggins win, or one question of the team's involvement at that time with Geert Linders, who has since been exposed as um, a... Seriously dodgy doctor with a very very uh, bad past. Um, so you know you got to put that in in the context then of, of that. Um, and David obviously was aware of that last year and was at the paper at the time and did not address that issue at all. So again, uh, I haven't. Uh, the question you asked me was 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 I had spoke did I had I spoke to him? We had we've had several fraught conversations about this uh, this year. And uh, he had an opinion on this four months ago, and that opinion hasn't changed. And as I say, he's entitled to that opinion.
5: The reason we're asking, I guess, about this piece, Paul, has not to do only with David's status in this particular profession, but also the access that he had to the Sky team during the, the tour. And when you boil down that article on Sunday, there seem to be three main arguments that he that he puts forward. Uh, for, I guess, why he believes in Chris Froome, they are essentially that he spoke to Dr. Richard Freeman, the Sky team doctor, who assured him that he'd been through uh, the data and was, was convinced everything was in order, although the implication there was that Froome's improvement was such that the doctor himself felt the need to to look into it. Uh, the other the reasons are that this uh, this condition that he had, Bilharzia, which has which has uh, been referred to a few times by Sky, was more successfully managed, uh, and also that experience has taught him to become a more tactically intelligent rider. These three reasons aren't uh, aren't convincing enough for you.
7: Well, it's not that not, not good. On, on, the, on the issue of his experience of spending time with the team and what he finds laudable, laudable about them as a team and exceptional about the team, I mean, you know, he mentioned this, you know, uh, attention to detail. And, you know, one small thing, they put, you know, pineapple juice in the water to make it more drinkable. Well, I'm sorry, I was at the ACB, a small amateur club, in, uh, in 1984, and we were doing that back then, so that's, that's not new, that's not inventing the wheel. Um, the really important thing that needs to be addressed in the Chris Froome story is this, and this is what his lead, I'm not going to tell him how he should be writing his pieces, but this is what the lead paragraph should have been. Uh, two years ago, Chris Froome was disqualified, from the, was disqualified from the Tour of Italy for hanging out of a motorbike going up one of the climbs. Uh, this year, he's a standout winner of the Tour de France. To what do we attribute this remarkable transformation? Because this is the problem. It's the transformation from a writer who was a good professional, uh, potentially a uh, pretty good profen- professional, but I don't think anybody, anybody in the sport would have looked at Froome in 08, 09 or 010 and described him as a Tour de France winner or a potential Tour de France winner.
1: Paul, why do you think it is, or do you think that, The the Sunday Times, I think it's quite clear, did a very good job in exposing Lance Armstrong. And David Walsh was heavily backed. And if people read his book, they'll they'll be able to find that out for themselves. Why is it, do you feel that they're not, or I should ask you, do you feel that they're not going after this story in the same way?
7: It's from my own experience of working at the Sunday Times. And from my own experience of having been invited by this team uh, in 2010, Yes, in 2010, they spent the Tour de France and they reneged on that offer on the eve of the race. And when I told my editor, I want to write about this and why they've torn me down, and the reason behind this, I was told you cannot write that piece. Okay, So that's for me, is a very simple reason why. Uh, There's there's a significant difference between the treatment of Armstrong and the treatment of Team Sky. It's in-house. It's part of the business. And of all the times, journalists, have you written pieces about Team Sky that your editors would not allow you to run? Because I have, and, and, and I wasn't allowed to run them.
1: Uh, Paul, just back to 2010, wh- why was it explained to you by Team Sky that you, the offer that they had put to you was actually being reneged on?
7: Well, I was on the eve of at the race at in, uh, in uh, Rotterdam, and I'd had a phone call uh, the day before uh, from Fran Miller the press officer saying there were problems and that they wanted to push the offer back a week um, they didn't want me on board from the start of the race and I said look I'll have to talk to Brailsford and I sat down with Brailsford and uh, I sat down with Brailsford on the eve of the race and I told him look it's all or nothing either give me full access or you don't um, I said no we can't do that some of the guys aren't happy some of the guys I presume being Wiggins uh, and I said, look, well, you've, you, you, you gave me your word on this. I've gone out and I've heard his camper van and I've, you know, we've, as a newspaper, uh, invested a lot of money in this story. He so, said, well, I'm sorry. I said, oh, so, okay, I said, we'll make a compromise. You will allow me to interview this week. I will come on board in seven days' time. But for this week, the start of the race, um, you will allow me to interview Michael Barry. Okay? And he knew exactly what I was doing. Uh, he knew exactly why I wanted to interview Michael Barry because Michael Barry had been implicated by Slide Landis uh, just a couple of months earlier um, about his involvement at u s postal and at a time when I was looking at Michael Barry being interviewed by the BBC in the lobby of the hotel, Dave Brace was telling me, "No, we, we cannot allow you to talk to Michael Barry you know um, so again, and this is the problem I have with this team you know we 're hearing so much now, and Froom said in an interview yesterday that he 's surprised that all these questions are being asked of a team that, has been, that is regarded as being at the forefront of anti-doping. Well, I'm sorry, that may be, that is clearly Chris Room's opinion, but that is not the opinion of myself and my own experiences of them and of a lot of the reporters. And I would probably include Jer- Jeremy Whitland in that. I don't want to speak for him, but I, I think he would agree with that. that. That would not be their experience of this team for the last few years.
5: Was well, there any justification given for that, Paul, at the time, or was it just a flat refusal?
7: Uh, I'm not. The justification would have been they're they're not happy. They they will find you unsettling. Uh, you know. I think that was the justification at the time. Um, I know there have been several attempts to spin that. I've heard from several people that I was supposed to have had this confrontation with Wiggins down in the Pyrenees, and that I'd gone down to his hotel room and barged in and and said all sorts of things, in which is absolutely untrue. So they've spun it a number of different ways and tried to create it or explain it as a personality conflict to myself and Wiggins, which is absolutely, totally untrue. But, but sorry, Ken, I want to make come back to something very interesting you said, really interesting you said, and, and, and in my view, the critical point in this Chris Froome story, and when I say critical, the point that observers of the sport are confused by. Uh, in in 2011, in the summer of 2011, uh, Froome's, Froome's contract was running out. Uh, by the time they got through Vuelta in September, guy still weren't sure they were going to renew it, okay? Still weren't sure. The team actually weren't sure they were going to renew his contract. And he went to the Vuelta that year and just was produced in its absolutely outstanding performance. So there was this radical transformation in uh, 2011 that David alludes to in this piece, that their team doctor at the time, Richard Freeman, went along and he was uh, surprised by it. He went and looked at the blood records. Now, this the disease he has, this tropical disease, Bill Bill Hartz. If you look and examine what he has said about that, Froome has said about that since, and what the team have said about that, there are some really starting inconsistencies about when he got this disease, how he was treated, what the disease actually entails, because what this does is it attacks your red blood cells. It attacks the red blood cells, the thing that should make you a super athlete. And again, you know, everything may be as it seems, but it's just at a time now when we've had a cancer martyr coming back who beats cancer and goes on to win seven tours. We have someone who suffers this. It is, with regard to endurance sport, a debilitating disease. Bill Hartsey, uh, something that attacks the blood cells, coming back and winning a, tour, winning a Tour de France in a manner that we haven't seen for, for a long time. Because this is actually one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. I mean, what he did at Mont uh, is was absolutely staggering. And anybody who's ever... Watch cycling or um, ridden the bike would have looked at that. And I and, and and again, I have my own opinion. But I went around and spent several days on the race asking other people about that, and they were the same. And you have to listen if you listen to the French commentary of it. Uh, the uh, their their opinion of it at the time is exactly the same as my own. So it's it's just remarkable. And it's again, it's the inconsistencies and David deals with it. I mean, the piece he wrote on Sunday is about I don't know, is it four thousand words long? And he deals with this critical aspect in one paragraph.
1: What are the inconsistencies that you have come across?
7: Well, when when exactly did he get it? And why did we only hear about this? Why did we only hear about Bill Hartia after this remarkable performance in 2011? Why wasn't it flag posted to everybody before then? Because he obviously had it for several years, but we only heard about it after this remarkable
5: transformation just uh, i mean as a, a former pro yourself in, in terms of that climb on mount von 2 what is it about it that's so impressed you is it simply a question of uh, of the pace at which he he was able to get up that mountain I, I i was i saw that michele ferrari is another one of the people who are impressed by this uh, and he talks a little bit about the unusual cadence that uh, chris room employs i mean yeah, uh, well, what, what what can you <laughs> say about that
7: well um very simply, he blew Alberto Contador. Absolutely smoked Contador without getting out of the saddle. Now, when you're climbing, okay, there are different techniques, but if you're going to suddenly accelerate, and I don't, I've never seen anybody accelerate in the way that Froome did without actually lifting his his ass from the saddle. So we just literally, it was like opening up a, a, a throttle. And and again, just the the uh, aesthetically, that was just just incredible. I've never seen anybody do that before. He didn't. He didn't actually get out of the saddle. Just. Just accelerated straight off the front, and uh, it was just, it was just amazing, absolutely amazing, and uh, it was astonishing for again a lot of uh, a lot of people who've uh, who've ridden bikes they, uh, they would never have seen that before. And again, it's it's you know having having seen it, you know, and I made this point in the piece I wrote for the Sunday Independent, you know, people are saying, "Wow, that was phenomenal, exception. Nobody is describing this as. A great performance. Nobody is putting through him in the pantheon of the greats, and if you're going to take that at face value, that's where he has to be, because this was absolutely astonishing. I mean, he's beaten his nearest rival by over five minutes. You've got to go back, I don't know, a long time um, to see anyone who who has dominated the tour by the same by the same margin.
5: Paul, I guess one thing that people um, maybe want to believe that the that the problems in this sport are are at least being solved
7: can i I want to believe that they are being solved but you know what do do i deny what i'm seeing before me do i uh, ignore my own eyes my own feeling do i ignore the opinions of other people i respect in the in the sport you know that's that's the difficulty now Uh, you know we all want to be and to be fair to be fair there were absolutely clear signs very clear signs during this tour that things are changing um I don't think, say, things have changed. I say things are changing. You look at the performance of Contador, and, you know, uh, the people who would criticise me now for uh, making the observations I'm making about Froome, I would ask them to direct uh, their criticisms or their observations to to how Contador has performed. You know, I mean, that is just, that is unbelievable. Um, So clearly there's there's a lot going on uh, that people want to accept and will accept, and a lot that they find difficult to accept. Um so uh, what
5: what what really I was wondering was, you know, I mean, we've seen, you, you know, you you spoke at a great length to Floyd Landis. We've seen Tyler Hamilton sort of give chapter and verse on um, on the ways in which the cyclists of a few years ago were were easily getting around the, the doping controls at the time. Um, and so maybe people think, well, surely now the authorities have to be a little bit more careful on this. Surely now it must be more difficult to dope in the same way, you know, to, to microdose using microdose testosterone, microdose EPO. Surely the controls are strict that these kind of methods of doping are, are, have become obsolete. Yeah. When the journalists are, are out there, do they talk about what else might be going on?
7: See again, you you you're right in what you say. The doping has changed, but when you say the microdosing has changed, that's actually the way it's changed. It's now down to microdosing. It's now 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 down to managing a consistent blood profile. And again, one of the inconsistencies of of David's piece was he um, he talks about Richard Freeman going back and looking at um, Froome's. Data, his blood profile from from that year, from 2010, the year of his transformation. Well, can we see that? You know, we are we we are supposed to believe that a sky doctor, uh, Richard uh, Richard Freeman, has has looked at these and he says it's okay. Well, let's let let us be the judge of that. Show us the uh, because people have been asking about that, and they made a very significant deal uh, last week of releasing his power the power power his power outputs to. Uh, to one of the French physiologists when you know we were asking for the whole lot, the whole package, the blood and the power and the full deal. Because if, as I say, you're either transparent or you're not. And if you're going to be transparent and if they have nothing to hide, then we need to see Froome's data and his blood profile from before uh, 2010 and not just since he won the Vuelta in 2011.
1: Paul Kim, some great stuff. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks, lad. Paul Kimmage there with some strong views, clearly, on David Walsh's stance on the Froome story. We did contact David himself to talk about his piece, but he actually declined to come on the show today. Ken, you brought up Michele Ferrari's name there, a blast from the past.
5: Yes, Michele Ferrari, the man who uh, worked with the likes of Lance Armstrong and and with Tyler Hamilton as well. Um, And he maintains an active interest in, in cycling. He watches the tour uh, and he comments on what he sees. And he, he had some things to say also about uh, Chris Froome. Uh, essentially, what he said was that the performance of Manifold to the one that we were talking about um, with Paul, was similar to uh, similar spectacular rise from Lance Armstrong and Alberto Contador in the past, similar type of power-up. We can hazard a guess that it was. Anyway, so he says. Um, and he just has a couple of comments in terms of, Uh, What he found impressive about it, uh, he finishes essentially by saying, with his alien physical morphology, very thin, with long, thin arms and legs, uh, Chris compensates such higher costs, essentially the the cost of spinning his legs around so fast that uh, that Paul was mentioning there, essentially by being really thin. Uh, And he says, he brings up uh, Mo Farah. Uh, another Englishman, Mo Farah, a specialist of the 5,000 and 10,000 metres, managed to improve the European record of 1,500 metres, which is holding on for 16 years. And also the, the British record, which was Steve Cram, said was it was a 24 years, a long time. Mo Farah managed to break this um, and approved by more than five seconds his personal best. So Ferrari says, just like Froome, Farah, as well as for outstanding performances, impresses for the ghastly, unhealthy thinness. Now, remember, this is Ferrari talking. He's a guy who essentially was, was obsessed with weight. If you read Tyler Hamilton's book, he's always talking about, oh, Tyler, Tyler, you're a little bit fat. And, you know, Hamilton is a cyclist. He's not fat at all. You're a little bit too fat, Tyler. Um, so Ferrari's obviously impressed by this. He says that uh, the ghastly, unhealthy thinness achieved how? Only with a particularly strict diet? This is the question those who care about the physical and mental health of the athletes should try to answer too he says in his Italian English.
1: Murph, it's been a fairly spectacular hurling season so far. A lot of people talking about It's possibly the greatest season ever. What's the biggest story,
6: do you think? Yeah, well, I think the biggest story is Dublin winning Leinster. um, Just because, think back to 15 years ago and how utterly ridiculous you would sound if you said that Dublin would be the 2013 Leinster Hurling Champions. But really what has struck me, and I think we can call it already as being the best ever championship, and the five big games that really define the championship still haven't been played yet, but... It's been the most rigidly hierarchical sport in the country for the last 10 years. That every county knows, not alone where they are, but how far away they are from numbers 1 and 2. And now, all of a sudden, it's been completely shaken up in a manner in which you would think it would have taken 3 or 4 years uh, to happen. So we're talking about a 10 or 11 team sport. There's only 10 or 11 teams that really play this sport seriously. And we have 6 teams left. They all think they can win the All Ireland, and Tipperary, that have been locked into the number two position in the sort of the rankings for the last four years, they're not even one of those six teams. So really, you can't overstate how re- this is basically, you know, Newcastle United topping the Premier League. You know, I mean, it just totally uh, turning it on its head. Uh, and really, it's 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 been it's been an amazing summer. Diarmuid O'Sullivan and Derek Ling join us now,
1: formerly of Cork and Kilkenny, respectively. Derek, I think it's all it's impossible to argue that it hasn't been an incredibly exciting season. But it only ever seems to be called exciting when Kilkenny go badly. Is that a source of frustration for you? <laughs>
8: yeah, I think look, it is to be expected, I suppose. If if um, I think the the team has, has been successful for a while. You know, everybody likes to see an underdog winning, and um, and other teams coming up. And I think any hurling supporter um, out there, apart from their own county, would always like to see you know counties that have done well in the past, but haven't done so you know recently. And you know, even myself, it's great to see Dublin win Leinster and uh, Limerick coming on and winning in Munster because um, it's good for the game. And if your own county you're not doing it well, then the next team you'd like to see it. Uh, See, being successful are the teams that probably haven't been uh, over the last few years. So, look, I think it's understandable. Um, I think you know it has been a great championship. The interest um, is sky high, and uh, and it's great. The fact is, you know, the, we're only heading into the quarterfinals now, and the real hurling if you like, has to start. You know, and it's, it's knockout for everybody now. And um, so, there's still lots to look forward to.
1: Comparisons are being made to the mid '90s and '95 in particular, when Clare broke through. But I have seen the argument made that. Actually, it's a bit more... In fact, Dennis Wells, who wrote the definitive book on that period, said in his Sunday Times piece, it's a lot more exciting this year because it's not just one story. You've got Limerick, you've got Dublin, you've got Tipperary going the other way and Kilkenny battling on and maybe one or two other fairly noteworthy stories. Uh, in an ordinary hurling season, if you've got one or two decent storylines, you'd be happy enough. There seem to be a, a bunch of them this time.
9: Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know what? Isn't it fantastic? You know, for for too many years, I suppose we've all been, we've all been expecting the, the top three or four to be dominant. But look... You know, Derek mentioned it there. You've Dublin making a breakthrough. You've Limerick making a breakthrough. I don't think Clare out of the equation yet. You know, they, they, I think they still have a story yet to be written within the championship. So, look, it has been fantastic. It's been open on any given day. You know, you can say, yeah, Cork can beat Kilkenny. can beat Galway or, or vice versa. You know, it, it's been fantastic. It's kept us on the edge of our seats. It's something we waited for a while where a result of an upcoming game isn't really a forecon conclusion, you know.
6: Uh, yeah, I actually just checked the odds uh, just before we, we came on air and Cork were the outsiders for the All-Ireland Champions, Championship of the six teams left and they're only at 10-1, to 1, which is just uh, outrageous given the way the, the Championship odds have been. Basically, Kilkenny way out in front, Tipperary tucked in behind them and then the rest of them you can kind of throw them up in the air, uh, which is great to see.
9: Oh yeah, look, it's it, it's open. Obviously, Cork will kind of fancy themselves at 10 to 1, you know, they'll never write themselves off until, until it's actually impossible, you know, but, you know, bookies are never far out, you know, they've, they've been, well, bar take less on this football, so obviously that was a <laughs> totally different kettle of fish, you know, it isn't too often that they lose, but there's been some outrageous bets of late in some championship games, but I think the hurling ones have all been cl- called close enough.
1: Derek, how much of it are you putting down to Kilkenny's level dropping? Has it, Given belief, I know that they weren't involved in the Munster Championship, but when every other county saw Kilkenny, and maybe based on a little bit of fallibility last year, this year they lose to Dublin and they go out early on, they face a do-or-die game against Tipperary. Do you think that that has helped other counties think that the level that those counties are at actually isn't a million miles off the very top?
8: I think so. There's There's a lot of things to look at there, really. I mean, Kilkenny, when you look at Kilkenny, they obviously haven't had a full 15 the first couple of games. Now, you know, it's not a thing to use as an excuse, but to me, it looks like their team is getting a little bit stronger as it's been going on. Michael Finley is back in the frame and he has been a huge loss to them. But in saying that, taking away, say, the loss of one or two injuries, the, I think other teams are looking at Kilkenny and um uh, you know this year in particular they're you know they're trying to the kitchen sink at them in every game and I think a lot of them have looked at the way Galway played Kilkenny last year as well even the tactics they've used and I think one of Kilkenny's strengths over the years has been winning their own ball particularly around their half back line midfield area and half forward line that kind of sector and um they fed off that and I think if teams don't have the players to match up there now you know, they're looking at bringing an extra man out there just cr- and trying to break the ball and using the extra man then to kind of play long diag- diagonal balls into forwards. And um, Dublin used that really well this year. And again, last year, Galway caught them as well playing the same game. So it's kind of, it's other teams, I think, are looking at it and um, are going for probably looking at the tactics of it a little bit closely, more closely as well. So there's probably, I think, I'd like to think the level has gone up. I don't think Phil Kenny's have dropped that much, to be honest, Um You know, even if you're looking at the extra time of the last match, I thought they got stronger as the game went on. So it wasn't anything got to do with tiredness, but it looked like, you know, things were beginning to click for them again. Their forwards were getting a little bit more confidence and kind of going at the water for backs a little bit more directly. So I think um, probably a combination of things, but I I think other counties are improving over the last few years. I think even their conditioning and everything else, so... Um, I think it's more to do with
6: that, German I'm interested in the psychology of of this Sunday that we've seen. Obviously, as we've been discussing, Kilkenny uh, really being pushed very, very hard by Tipperary and by Watford in the last couple of weeks, uh, and they've managed to f- they've found a way to win. And I'm just curious about Cork as a ver- as quite a young team, quite an inexperienced team at this level. Have they actually got it in them to put the knife into probably you know the, the greatest hurling team we've ever seen?
9: Look, I suppose, you know, they have nothing to lose. Come Saturday, you know, this is a young and inexperienced Cork team. They have nothing to lose. You know, people are still referring to them once the monster final, you know, Patrick Horgan being sent off. Would Cork have still had the impact in the game? You know, they had 11-wise at that stage. They were well in with a shout. Um, just looking forward to Saturday. It's going to take a massive, massive effort from them. Getting Patrick's red card, obviously, turned over is a huge plus because I don't think Cork could have had an opportunity to defeat Kilkenny. I think the last time Cork and Kilkenny met he gave, he's probably one of the only forwards in a while to give Jackie Terrell thorough time. So uh, Cork would be looking to him to to maybe pull pull the same kind of rabbit out of the hat on Saturday evening for them. And, you know, the other obvious thing is Cork have never lost four championship games in a row to Kilkenny. So, look, it's if they're if they're they're mentally strong enough you know, to accept the challenge of taking on Kilkenny, you know, as Derek will tell you, you leave Kilkenny dominate you, Kilkenny will dominate you. If you go toe-to-toe with them, they'll go toe-to-toe with you, but you'll always give yourself a fighting opportunity. you know.
1: Derek, for this season to really go down, because it, there is always a danger in getting caught up a little too much in the excitement of it as it's actually happening, but if the season is to go down as maybe the greatest ever... Does it, I, it might pain you to say it, but do one of these other counties like Dublin or Limerick or somebody have to win it rather than Kilkenny?
8: Yeah, I uh, I take a point. I guess from a Kilkenny point of view, no, but yeah, I think um, if you ask most hurling uh, supporters outside of Kilkenny, they'd say yes. You know, that, you know, from this stage for the year to kind of to cap the year off, yeah, you need a Limerick, a Clare, um, anybody else really that's, that hasn't, you know, really in Crow Park in september and um you know that's the reality of it and i don't think you know i don't think um anyone from kilkenny would uh, mind too much really um at that t- at the t- thought of that but uh going back to dermot's point there you know i think uh, i think cork have a good chance this weekend um i saw them uh, against kilkenny in nolan park this year and i thought their movements and their of, from their forwards was very good and technically Kilkenny at times and you know o'murphy Murphy made a couple of saves in that game um had had he not saved them, particularly in the first half, Cork would have been uh, a, a few points ahead at half time. And it was a game for Kenny were looking to win as well to avoid relegation and to set themselves up um, for both teams, I think, it was to avoid relegation and to get to the knockout stages of the league. So both of them went at it. And um, that's the thing for Cork. They probably have a better inside line than Watford had two weeks ago. Now, are they as strong in the half back and midfield as opposed to Watford um, when you compare Brick Welsh and these lads? I'm not so sure and um, ultimately that game was decided by Tukeney really in the last 10 minutes they started to win kind of hard ball around the middle again which is their you know that, as we're saying that's their strength but I would give Cork a very good chance if they can kind of keep up Tukeney get a few scores on the board they like the open spaces of Turles um, I think it could be I don't think it's going to be as one-sided as kind of people are saying. I think it could be a, an open an open enough game.
1: We've been talking about Claire as possibly having another say in the end of season end game. Dermot, do you think that it is a winnable quarter-final for them against Galway?
9: Well, look, I think you know Clare took a, a fair bit of stick since the defeat the def- defeat against Cork, but look, they've they've circled the wagons, they've regrouped her after a couple of good positive results since. I I felt that day you know, people were being very, very hard on Clare. It didn't work for them. They've, they've worked for the system. Um, they've backed themselves to this system. I still think they're a great shout. Galway were bitterly disappointing, you know, in the Championship so far to date. Have they enough in the time to raise themselves over the last couple of weeks? Have they the players? It, it remains to be seen. I would definitely give Clare a massive shout on Saturday evening, to be honest with you.
1: All right, we'll leave it there. Tim and Derek Ling. Thanks a million.
5: Okay. The hairdryer is, is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated <laughs> by yes. various blasts of temper.
4: The hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously
7: associated. He threw a hairdryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh don't
4: he threw a hairdryer at David
7: Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no,
4: no, no.
6: Second Captains at the Irish Times available Tuesdays
1: on iTunes and irishtimes.com What I like about this, and I, I still want to wait to see what happens over the last number of weeks here. It's been really exciting. It's been an incredible June and incredible July. Let's just see how August and September go <laughs> before we go too crazy on how amazing a season it has been. But it seems like any team this season suddenly becomes an All Ireland contender when they win a match Clare haven't been pulling up trees, but they're in there and they're a young side and a lot of people fancy them maybe to give Galway a go, yeah. possibly beat them. Suddenly
6: they're in an Ireland semi-final and what's to say? They can't make a final. Well, they're playing either Dublin or Limerick mm. and call that. Yeah, I mean, there there's really isn't any way of calling that with any great degree of certainty. So that's that's where we are. I mean, that's the brilliance of this of this summer. Now, I mean, the only way that you would be really clear out if they were to beat Galway would be if Kilkenny beat Cork by 25 points and, you know, re-establish the status quo. But I don't think that's going to happen. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's why this Sunday is freighted with so much importance for the four teams that are playing. Ken, I'm going through the running order here, and I'm a little bit concerned.
1: I'm happy enough with what... What's we, your problem? Man? Well, no, I mean, we've been doing, I think, a lot of interesting stuff so far, and we've still got some some good items to come. But no mention of the jewel and the second captains at the Irish Times crown, P.
6: Bezzo. mm Piers Pierce immigrant Brosnan shout
5: shoutouts oh right okay. I thought you were going to say why haven't we talked about football yet but I guess uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we can do p am <laughs> sure yeah.
6: well I mean well we're actually going to do a live p on Thursday night uh, in our show on the Grand Social so we don't have time for it today but the listeners can still get involved because Shane Horgan has shown the way here if you get on Twitter or on Facebook you'll see the great man holding a hashtag p sign outside the Olympic Park <laughs> in London <laughs> So uh, if you want to feature this Thursday night, then take a photograph of where you are holding a self-made uh, p bezel sign. I even actually discussed this with, uh, with Pierce uh, to see if he'd do one from underneath the Hollywood sign. But while he certainly thought that the idea had merit, he didn't want the slot to become, you know, too meta. You know, the radio slot that edits itself that kind of thing. Yeah. But I mean, you know, if he, he, he felt uncomfortable. There's no reason for any of our listeners to feel uncomfortable. So please, our listeners in Easter Island, East Timor... The Galapagos Silence. You know, get involved. Onto the football. So, Ken, this is something that you flagged
1: up at the start of the programme. The kind of polite war of words between Sky Sports and BT Sports. Something
5: polite about it though, and an extremely macho war of words. Well, yeah,
1: but I'm just talking about the phraseology. BT describes Sky Sports as like a rottweiler running away from a newborn puppy. In other words, us just little old BT are here. Yeah. Just throwing out some games on a Saturday early afternoon to see what happens. And these Sky guys, they're chasing us away. They're being really aggressive. Sky come back and say, they call themselves puppies. They're a gorilla in puppies' clothing.
5: A 22 billion pound yeah. gorilla. And that that's pounds sterling as opposed to pounds of weight.
1: Those quotes were back in April, I should mention. But it's gone on kind of tit for tat since then. Anytime there's a major development, Sky picks some of the best games they can as early as they can to try to just get on top and stop BT getting any sort of momentum up. Um, send so th- after that saying, well, listen, BT call themselves a game changer. There's nothing game changing from what I can see, mm. says the Sky bigwig. So we are going to talk a little bit about this right now. Gabriella Mercati and Jonathan Wilson are on the show. Jonathan, just by the fact that Sky are getting involved in a little bit of tit-for-tat stuff, um, are they rattled? Is this an issue for Sky, the arrival of BT?
2: Well, I think it's certainly potentially an issue uh, because football is clearly so central to the Sky's model that they, you know, they, they have been the the go-to place for Premier League football for yeah two decades now, and I think that yeah there is a fear there that they you know, they can't let that disappear. Um, whether they're actually scared of BT or not, I'm I'm, I'm not so sure. Yeah, they've seen off all, all competitors so far. I, I guess the difference with BT is this interesting thing that's happening now that it's it's internet service providers who who are suddenly getting involved in, in rights issues, and so I guess that is yeah you know, the game is changing in that uh, online rights are suddenly becoming very important as it becomes possible to to watch football on on your tablet on your iPhone on your on your laptop and so i think possibly they're rattled in the sense that the you know, this isn't the same game that they they won 20 years ago
1: yeah and the offer Gabriele, that they the BT have put out there is fairly appealing as long as you're you're on their broadband then you get the football and the rest of the sport for a fairly generous kind of a price so i'm just wondering is that so? Is it something that Sky should be worried about? Because BT say, look, we are here to say we're not ESPN, we're not Satanta, we're homegrown. It's a new world now, and we're on top of it, and Sky aren't, essentially.
10: I, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think there's a couple of things here. One is um, this new set of TV rights, BT spent so much money on them. And, and by consequence, Sky, of course, had to uh, up their game as well. You don't quite know where they're going to get the money from because you know you're talking about an increase of seventy percent, um, roughly speaking, over the previous set of rights. And the reality is, you know, there's something like nine million Sky subscribers in the UK, out of twenty-seven million households. And of those nine million, five and a half million are, are Sky Sports subscribers. Now, you're not really going to be able to increase, I think, you know, your, your subscriber base if, if you're Sky. Uh, and yet you 've spent so much more money, and you can make some of that up maybe with with uh, higher advertising rates, but um, really not substantially and what makes b t different from the other ones is uh, from from satanta certainly in, in ESPN is also the fact that uh, you know because of the way they 're bundling um, their their TV service with uh, with some of their other services uh, they 'll be able to reach people who who simply cannot afford. A sky subscription um and so if they did their sums right and that's a big big if you know they'll be able to sort of instantly reach a larger base than the espn or, or satanta could because you know, those were subscription services and that in turns mean that you know perhaps they can uh, they can make more money from from advertising because they'll be reaching sort of a larger audience from the start they won't necessarily need to to grow it over time
5: i mean Gabriel, as you were saying that the, the money involved is just colossal. It's nearly 250 million pounds a season. We're talking about one match a week that BT have got for that. Um, Why do you think it is, though, that that live sport, particularly football, seems to be um, such a valuable commodity for these uh, TV companies? I mean, what is it, you know, why does this seem to be the only genre of content on television that attracts this kind of investment from the firms? Well,
10: I I think uh, the end um, and, you know, I, I, I turn 40 next week. And uh, um, I don't think I know anybody younger um, than me who actually sort of flips on the television and says, oh, let's see, what's on at 9 o'clock tonight? Um, everybody I know DVRs or or watches on some sort of delay like Netflix and so on. And what that means is obviously if you're going to do that, if you're not watching stuff live, but if you're watching even, you know, drama and or other shows, if you're watching them on a delay – um, unless you're an idiot you're gonna fast forward the ads and and advertising companies understand this and uh, they know their ads aren't being watched uh, so the, the, the there's only really three types of television um, that you kind of have to watch live one is the news but obviously you know you don't know when when you know massive news is gonna break um, one is live sport and, and the third is you know stuff like uh, like Big brother or, or, or pop idol or you know britain's got talent shows like that which which is another reason why uh, a lot of tv companies have poured money into that those are the only ones where you have to watch live and so you know you you can still charge high ad rates um but of of the three the easiest is is sport because you know when the games are on and you know that you know people will be watching those uh in live in real time and so you can put ads around uh the the games and You know, you can maybe charge more for, you know, various forms of in-game sponsorship and so on.
1: Yeah, that's interesting, Jonathan, because the way BT are marketing this, they're trying to make the point that it's not just about the live output. They say that Sky's coverage is cold, our coverage to be more fun, more interactive, more intelligent, I think, really, given that they're putting a lot of documentaries out there. But is a lot of that really superfluous to it is it i kind of like the idea of a different approach to what's already there but really is it just down to how they deliver the live football that will make or break this
2: well i I think sort of you generally it's it's good to have a new approach and i I think we've seen this really since around about 1919 in the sky revolution that the bbc's coverage of sport when we're used to watching or you know people in britain certainly we're used to watching all sport on the bbc it had become very staid, and, and I still don't think the BBC have fully recovered from that. And I mean, I think cricket is a great example. When it went to Channel 4, Channel 4 brought in a huge number of innovations that really just seem obvious now, and you can't, you can't understand why they weren't there. Uh, or you know, in football, Sky putting the score and the clock in the corner of the screen. I mean, why on earth had that not been done before? It's an easy thing to do. Makes it you know, it just makes the viewing experience better, and it hadn't been done. So I think having new ideas, sort of constantly forcing, you know, people, who, existing broadcasters who have the rights to to come up with new ideas, to you know, challenging them, so they can never sink in the sort of complacency. I think BBC Sport did. That is just a good thing for the viewer. So from that point of view, um, yeah, okay, some of the things that BT have might just be gimmicks. Some of them might disappear after a few weeks, but just having a new pair of eyes, new energy, I think has got to be a good thing for the viewer.
5: Do you think, uh, Jonathan, that Sky's coverage is? is cold um not not a lot of fun and so on the kind of charges that BT are making I mean is, is sky I don't know if you would have seen this Matthew Syed clip from a from a few weeks ago where he went on Sky Sports news and and said some kind of you know tell some some things about Roman Abramovich that if you'd been reading the the sort of news sections would have been quite familiar to you you know from his from his court case and so on, and it was like he'd wandered onto the set of the Truman Show and started you know, coming out with this sort of, sort of crazy stuff. Um, do you think Sky so far you know, has been serving the, the viewer well?
2: Um, yeah, with, within certain limits. And I think Sky's coverage of football generally, in terms of the, the coverage of the game, is excellent. And, and what Gary Neville has brought to in the tree is astonishing. And although Andy Gray sort of became a figure of fun by the end, when he started, he was revolutionary. And it was just familiarity that I think you know, bred the content there. The, the, the impact that Andy Gray had on, on punditry was enormous. And that, that has carried it forward. Is that cold? I don't know. Personally, I enjoy it, but maybe that's a personal taste. I, I have to say the word fun and football, the two things don't necessarily go together for me. And that scares me slightly. Um, I'm not sure how much fun you're going to have with Michael Owen and Rio Ferdinand as either. But, but anyway... Um, but but equally at the same time, I, I, there, there clearly has been a protection of a product, um, which is natural because football is is so, so central to the Sky model. I, obviously, you know it, it is one of the uh, contradictions that exists in any media empire. That if it has a, a, it's trying to be a news provider and at the same time it is promoting its product. There is a, there is a conflict there. Um, I, I don't really see how BT are going to avoid that either. But but certainly that conflict exists. Yeah.
5: Uh, Gabriel, there's a question, uh, kind of a wider question here. We have been talking about how these uh, TV companies are serving the, the viewers, but how do you think they're serving the game in general? Because clearly this has been the, you know, the, the main thing about the Premier League over the last 20 years, well, certainly over the last 10 years since these TV deals got ratcheted up to such extreme heights, is that it's richer than any of the other leagues. And now the gap is, is just uh, increasing. I mean, the... Uh, I think that this, the bottom place team in the Premier League next season is going to get uh, about £60 million sterling, which will immediately give that club, whoever they are, the relegated, the worst team in the Premier League, a bigger turnover than Lazio, before you take into account any of their other income streams. I mean, this is a, a huge uh, advantage that English clubs have. But do you think that it's necessarily been good for the game? Because when we look at the performance of you know, the English national team, but they don't seem to be able to produce players.
10: Well, first of all, I'm not, I'm not sure that that, that Lazio stat is uh, is right. Well, I think I think, think, I, the, I think it,
5: Lazio's Lazio's um turnover is about 85 million euros. So that's you know, roughly in the region of 60 million pounds and that's what this, you know, we are talking about the bottom place club getting from from TV. I mean, it's 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 pretty frightening. You know, if you look around right. uh, you know, Atletico, Valencia clubs like this the turnover is usually around the hundred million pound mark, and nearly every club in the Premier League is going to have a bigger turnover than that.
10: Right? No, no. no. I, uh, I mean, I think everybody just, I just—I mean, the point quickly. I think those might be last year's figures. Um, I, I think uh, the, the, the figures just follow on one thing, Jonathan, or two things, Jonathan, said very, very quickly. One is, whenever somebody uh, talks about fun and it's only a game and all this stuff, um, I want to—I want to scream and start breaking things because I don't think that's the way most football fans see it. I think those are very casual fans who look at it and it's all a bit of a laugh and uh, you end up with people who aren't funny people who are patronizing uh, and people who, who crack stupid jokes um and you know talk about uh, footballers mullets and stuff and i really hope that they don't go down that that road they want to be funny you know uh, you put lovejoy he's gonna have his program be funny there all day um but then you know leave, uh, leave the comedy bits out um the other thing that's that's pretty big, and I think this might be where where Sky and BT could monetize. And this is, I have to say, this is where English sports media um, or British sports media is so different from anywhere else in in Europe. I dare say, in the rest of the world. In the rest of the world, the, the news agenda is driven by broadcasters, It's driven driven by radio, and it's driven by TV. The same people who cover the games report on the game is and they do real reporting they break stories they figure we've got this great access we're going to go and break stories and you know sometimes it might put us at odds with uh, the people we cover but in general they kind of realize that you know ultimately it's all publicity and a rising tide lifts all boats and so on if you look in england there's the, the sports people do almost zero reporting you know sky sports news is a tiny budget and basically just kind of promotes um the 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 other programming they have on um bbc sport doesn't even pretend i don't think they have any reporters whatsoever um they don't even pretend five live maybe does a little bit it'll be interesting to see whether bt sport actually are going to try to break news but otherwise in england everything is still dominated by uh, by the daily newspapers which which makes it kind of unique and i think in terms of driving audiences, is something which remains somewhat untapped for both Sky and BT if they've got the courage uh, and the wherewithal to uh, uh, to pursue that. In terms of the game itself and the England team supposedly underachieving, um, I, I'm slightly uh, you know I'm just might be disappointed at some, but I'm slightly laissez-faire and, and free market when it when it comes to that. Uh, you know you've seen those stats coming out uh, recently about how. There was maybe 35, 38 percent of Premier League players last year were eligible for England, and it's 60 percent in Germany. And isn't it horrible, or whatever? Hey, The reality is, those first of all, those figures are skewed a little bit because there's obviously a lot of Welshmen, Irishmen, and Scots who are effectively produced by English clubs, so they, they do produce more than uh, they're actually given credit for. Uh, you know, it's not like every Northern Irish players who come, you know, is, is formed at Dundalk or some place like that, but Beyond that, um, I, I think there's, um, there's also a sense, and I think it's true, that, that those English players who do play in the Premier League face better quality opposition uh, than they would otherwise. And that makes them better players. And it's not a coincidence that between 2002 and 2006, England achieved better results internationally than they had at every stage in their history, uh, bar between 1966 and 1970. Um, by the same token... I think it's also true that there's a very positive knock-on effect to the championship. All those English players who can't make it in the Premier League, it's not like they just retire. They play in the championship. As a result, the championship has the highest average attendance uh, than they've had since, I think, the late 60s, early 70s. And if you look at League One attendances, uh, it's also booming. Uh, There's a tremendous amount of interest in the championship in League One. And I genuinely believe that part of it is because the quality of the football is, is as good as it's been for the past 40 years. And that is in part due to the fact uh, that there's so many players who get shunted down from the Premier League to the championship and from the championship to league one
5: yeah, uh, and I take your point, uh, Gabrielle, about the you know the the general standard being higher and, and you know foreign players coming in m- meaning that it 's a more testing environment and the players that do make it have to be better and, and you know if thirty eight percent of players are English, that's still quite a lot of players uh, in the league but Jonathan I, I, Gabrielle also used the word the words laissez faire and when I look at a uh, British sport. Let's call it British sport because it's often Great Britain rather than England. It's, it seems to be in a kind of golden age at the moment. Um, you know, in all you know across a whole range of different sports. I mean, the Olympics are this huge success. The cricket team is is dominant at the moment. Um, you know, you've even got a, a British Wimbledon singles championship. Um, you know, the cycling, which didn't exist in Britain a few years ago, is now they, they dominate the world of cycling. And in none of those cases. You could you could add rugby in there too. In none of those cases did this just happen organically. There was always, a pl- maybe a, you know, with the exception of Andy Murray, who's who's, who's a uh, an outlier, but there was always a sort of a plan. There was always an organisation. It wasn't just a question of laissez faire. It'll come together. It strikes me as really strange that the biggest sport in that country and the and the richest sport, a sport is getting richer all the time, is the one in which they continue to underperform, uh, or at least can't seem to get it together in the way that rival European countries. Spain and Germany have managed to do.
10: Sorry if I jump in here, Ken, but, I mean, what are we talking about? We're talking about minority sports. We're talking about locking Chris Foy in and in making him cycle indoors all day and throwing enormous amounts of money at him because of the London Olympics. So, wow, yeah. big deal. Look, you won that. We're talking about cricket. Well, there's Chris... You naturalize a bunch of guys and you go and and, and you beat Australia.
1: Well, in fairness, you know, Cameron, yeah. road cycling has a, a fairly, uh, you know, fairly... Uh, Worldwide kind of uh, feel to it, and it's not just a case of one or two countries. Whatever about the track cycling, which is maybe something that was a bit easier to dominate, and uh, Andy Murray is now one of the best tennis players in the world in the golden era of tennis. I think there have been British sport is quite successful at the moment. Besides, but
7: but 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 but, but
10: I think I mean I'm not saying it's it's not successful. I I, I would submit that perhaps Murray is a bit of a a, a, of an outlier. Um, But I think you know it's it's no surprise. You know, East Germany used to dominate the world. If you devote more money uh, to a sport, you will in time tend to perform better on it. Um, but, you know, the, the the money that's being spent, it's not, it's not like, you know, they had a great plan for cycling and they were able to do this. They chose to divert money to certain sports ahead of other sports where they did better in the past, but but or uh, Britain did better in the past, but are now doing worse. Um, they also got a big boost in sponsorship because of the Olympics, and they're enjoying the benefit of it. If if the government or if there was more money flowing into purely the development of of uh, of British players, uh, British footballers, I'm sure over time they would do better. Um, but you know, then you open up a whole other can of worms, and do we want? governments? Do we want funds to all go towards producing more players or do we want them to go and, you know, be spent on, on other things like, uh, nurses and policemen and hospitals and schools? Um, you know, I, I think they should be thankful that the, for lack of a better word, the private sector is producing the players here in England and, uh, and, and, and they're getting pretty good results, uh, both domestically and in, 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 as, as a league and with a national team, it's certainly a much more competitive environment, I think, than any of the other sports that that, that you've cited.
1: Yeah, Jonathan, what about that? I mean, BT spending seven, with the guts of a, of a what is it, £738 million sterling uh, f- over three years for one game of football per week into the sport. Now, it's Premier League, it's not into the England team, but surely there's got to be some sort of mechanism there whereby English football as a whole could benefit from that when really it doesn't seem to be the case at all.
2: Well, I I think the issue of why football perhaps lags behind other sports is that there's such a dislocation between who has the money and the national team in football. You know, in, in cricket, the counties are are incentivized to produce players who play for England. If they play for England, they get more money from the ECB. Um, in, in things like cycling, rowing, sailing, there's been investment from the lottery, then as, as Gab said, the sponsorship from from the Olympics. Uh, and they are sports in which investment of cash has a very direct impact because you know, if you have a better boat, it gives you huge advantage. If you have a better bike, it gives you a huge advantage. So, But the, the issue in football is that when Arsenal invests in their academy, they're doing the best for Arsenal, It's the best for England. If if Manchester City invests in their academy, it's to do the best for Manchester City. It's not the best for England. And actually, I think in football, we, we've seen the, the, the dangers of having a centralised academy, which we had at Lillishaw and the Charles Hughes, um, and, and you had his, you know, things like Stephen Gerrard, Liverpool deliberately tried to keep him away from there because they felt that was detrimental to his development. They felt he developed better in, in Liverpool's academy. So you know, the issue is that the clubs do what's best for them, which is entirely right and proper, and there's, there's no really incentive for them to produce players for the England national team, which is you know, the exact opposite of the case in cricket. And just to pick up Gav's point about naturalised players, it, I mean, it's just nonsense, <laughs> frankly. Um, yeah, there's two players in the present team who uh, you would count as South African, or he might class as South African. Both of them have British parents. Both of them, in any sport in the world, would be entitled to play for England. So to suggest that England's success in cricket is a result of naturalisation is is absurd.
1: Gabriele Marcotti, Jonathan Wilson, brilliant stuff. We'll all see how uh, see what BT managed to bring to the table. Thanks very much for chatting to us.
2: Cheers. Thanks very much.
1: Yeah, just to go back to this idea, Ken, that Jonathan raises there and. Gabriele agrees with, with Football
5: shouldn't be fun. I mean, fu- football. You want show, go in theatre.
6: Yeah, well... I, what about Rio Ferdinand's World Cup wind-ups? I personally couldn't disagree more. I mean, I'm the proud owner of Ian Wright's It Shouldn't Happen to a Footballer. And, of course, it's a very successful sequel. It really shouldn't happen to a footballer. Robbie Savage's Football Howlers. David James presents Who'd Be a Goalkeeper Football Gaffes? <laughs> And of course, we could never forget Ricky Tomlinson's football, my arse. <laughs> uh, oh, but, that, but that was genuinely brilliant. That I mean, <laughs> we were talking about some of his finest ever yeah, work. The effects
5: yet. of this, you know, all this, this flood of money, and, and also, I mean, I think it's, it's Barney Francis, this guy's sort of head of, yeah. is he the head of sports or certainly the, he the head of football anyway? Saying um, four thousand hours, I think it is. Is it four thousand hours of coverage now? They're doing it's in it's a the, Sky Sports managing director. And, and I saw maybe some, one of the uh, ways in which this has changed the game the other day when I, I saw a photograph of Brendan Rodgers on uh, Liverpool's Eastern tour. I'm not sure quite where in the Orient they've got to. It could even be the Antipodes they'd reached. And he was flashing a smile so dazzling that for some unaccountable reason it reminded me of Michael Douglas's Liberace in <laughs> the movie Behind the Candelabra, which I saw recently, and I thought... Rogers is actually looking pretty good there. I mean, you got I, I put it down to the time. Only later did I discover that, in fact, while uh, football has been on its break over the summer, Brendan Rogers has gone away. And this is, a, this is a widely known story, which somehow I missed at the time, has has gone and had a little bit of work done on his teeth. So uh, the next time you see Brendan Rogers, be sure to look out for his pearly smile. And this is something which I guess is a direct... Uh, result of Sky's influence in the game both the scrutiny of Rogers' face uh, which is created by their coverage of the game and also the vast wealth of Brendan Rodgers which is created by uh, all the money that they've pumped into the game Uh, and I suppose at the end of it Brendan Rodgers looks that little bit better and the rest of us all look that little bit worse by implication
1: if you've been listening to the show much in recent times you'll be well aware that each week we bring you some of the best commentary from around the country of the big championship stories there have been loads in football and hurling this year check out this from Sunday this is Monaghan taking the Ulster Championship for the first time in 25 years absolutely wonderful story and wonderful commentary too Northern Sound is the station Nudie Hughes and Alan Gunn is the commentary team What heck of a
4: mighty roar when the final whistle goes Tommy Freeman Tommy Freeman and Monaghan lead by 6 points, Monaghan 13 points, Donegal 7 points and if any man deserved a point for the work and commitment he has put in over the years, it's Tommy Freeman Moody Hughes. But there goes the final at and Monaghan are Ulster champions for the first time since 1988, they have dethroned the reigning All-Ireland champions. And now, uh, Donegal will not be making a three in a row of Ulster. And the crowd are coming in from the four corners of St. Park. The anglo south Cup is coming home to Monaghan for the first time in 25 years. We had waited 41 years the last time Monaghan beat Donegal in the Ulster final. We have waited 25 years and have beaten Donegal yet again, Newtie Cues. You were there in 1988, but... Disre- no disrespect to the 1988 team. This means so, so much to the county. It's uh, the goals, we've we'll kept waiting and hoping someone will replicate everything we've done. But I have to say, I see Father Larry Duffy working like away way off, written, with waiting of tell what a clue, and I'm my playing partner in the Roswell Cup. So I have to Father Larry
6: E. It was very close, <laughs> though. It was very, very close to being Father Larry Duff there but uh, we're happy to make the, make the clarification there that it was Duffy We're joined by one of
1: Monaghan's heroes on Sunday Dick and Dick brilliant achievement how have the last couple of days been for you?
3: I think it's been just great you know I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm staying in my uh, my wife's home house here in Monaghan the last few days taking a presidency in town here in Monaghan because I'm living in Trim now these days but I guess just mornings like these, you sort of wake up and you sort of have a few quiet moments, and you can sort of read the tweets and texts and, and, and papers, and, and just sort of it all sort of sinks in and it just keeps that parent smile on your face. And you think of all the, as you said, the long time we've been waiting and, and so many sore and disappointing days over the last few years. It just makes up for so much.
1: Has it taken until today to get those quiet moments for yourself?
3: No, well I had a few yesterday as well and I suppose I hadn't seen uh, my wee fellow all, all day on Sunday so I said I'd spend most of the day yesterday with him before we sort of met up later in the afternoon and went around the town so that was, that was nice as well. I got to watch watch the match with him yesterday morning and that was, that was actually a lovely wee moment just to, just to chill out and watch the game by because... The way games go these days, there's so much happening on the day, you can't really remember actually what happens and uh, the timing of events. And, uh, you know, people talk about different things in the game, so you get to sit back and watch them all and um, see the way the game played out. And, you know, it, there's sort there of two ends to the way things went on Sunday. Okay, obviously the, the, the winning of the, 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 uh, the, the also title after so long or so well but the manner in which we done it was almost equally satisfying and I think that's what you know after all the um that the hype day down people actually sit back and reflect on like the, the quality of the performance and, and the manner in which we played makes it, you know, we, it a serious sense of pride to go with that as well.
2: Yeah, I
1: I might throw another element in there as well. I don't know if this is the sense that you got from speaking to supporters in the last couple of games, but a couple of days, I should say. But we were up there doing a show in Monaghan Town uh, the day after. I think it was the day after the 2010 final. And we got the sense that there was a huge amount of disappointment, obviously, but particularly because that year the supporters really got themselves whipped up. They thought that this was a coming Monaghan team and that they were going to get over Tyrone, win the... Uh, Ulster Championship and ultimately go on, maybe, and compete for an All Ireland, and it just didn't happen. Whereas this year, the sense seemed to be certainly from outside, Manon, that n- nobody was even talking about it. It wasn't even considered that you guys could actually win the game, and because there was maybe that low expectation from supporters, that added to the joyous feeling at the end of the match.
3: It was, and I'd say it'll probably actually take a few days so people actually really realize, um, sort of what happened. It caught an awful lot of people by <laughs> <and they laughs> surprise and by shock. Um, like nobody literally nobody like I'd say it's probably our own um, group of, of players and management genuinely thought that we could win you know you sort of um, people would sort of be you know, well wishing and then they would hope And when they're wishing you well they're hoping you don't get hammered and they're hoping that at least it's you know, it's it's whatever happens that you can see a face, but genuinely, nobody it gave us a chance. And, uh, you know, just talking to to different people over the last few days, like, it's just sort of taking people back. Like, nobody had Monday booked off, for instance, you know. So, like, you know, <laughs> you know like, whereas, as you said rightly, in 2010, there was such a level of expectation going into that game. Um, and it was such an anti climax after it, like, it really just hit. Um, Monaghan football people hard and uh, really, like it did take a couple of years really for us to get over that. There was such a, a loss of momentum and there was such a knock to the confidence for everyone involved um, because of the way we went into that final. Yeah, uh, so, s- s- d- sorry,
6: Dick. Yeah, just just uh, so many uh, teams come out after wins and say that you know, no one gave us a chance and there's kind of a a bitterness or a rancor there, but as from listening to you, it's like, well, no one gave us a chance, and we can kind of understand why they didn't give us a chance, and we were able to work uh, within those parameters pretty, pretty easily.
3: Of course, you know, and and sometimes you're right. You can get a little bit frustrated with it, but you couldn't, you couldn't blame them in, in a lot of ways. looking like you look at the our performances against the Armstrong and Calvin, like there was nothing really in that. So we small little bits. Um, would. Would 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 make you think that you could deliver that level of performance against Donegal. Um and even sort of over the 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 the, the, the um, spring like our performances in the league that they were patchy, you know, and, and a few terrible performances when you look back to Cav and the Cav game and Roscommon where we lost those games. like you really wouldn't have thought that you could deliver of that because we hadn't shown that we could uh, bring that level of performance. And just talking to some of the lads last night, like to me the strange the the, the strangest thing of Sunday was. Now, you know, most games you go into, you know, you talk about your 15 individual battles out there. Like, on a good day, if you win 10 of those and you can 10 of your starting 15 have a good game, you're, you're, you're a long way there. Like, on Sunday, like, to a man, number 1 to 15 and all the subs had not just good games, some of them probably the, the, the best games ever in the Monaghan jersey. and like for that to happen on an Ulster Final day in the manner it did' it's just it's just so rare and um, whether to say what, what's rare is beautiful you know
6: yeah uh, and obviously Ulster Final Day is synonymous with Clonus, and uh, f- you know it looks more and more likely now that there's the the days of Ulster Finals and Clonus are a bit numbered, um, was that a big motivating factor uh, for for this Monaghan team?
3: Not really, in, in fairness, you no, know, we, we, we would, um, things like that's more, more sentiment than anything, but I think it, what it does, it, it just puts such a nice gloss on the wind when you're looking back. The fact that it was in clones and you'll always have memories of last night, um, we went back to Clonus. was was we done five different towns around the county last night, and we also reckon, reckon that Clonus had the best atmosphere that was there. You know, and like there is Clonus is a probably a town that suffered over the last few years from an economic point of view, and it's a border town, a lot of difficulties. But it's such a a, a, a famous history from a sporting point of view. Like the last captain in '88 was Kieran Murray, um, a Clonus man, and had Barry McGuigan. and they had so many scenes, and probably over the years of teams coming back on the diamond and Clonus, and uh, you know they just you know, to be able to receive us last night was such a big thing for them. And, you know, it'll be if to final does go to Belfast over the next couple of years, which as you said, it, it, it looks like that, you know, what a fitting way to to, to remember um uh since Park.
1: How long are you staying up there at the in laws?
3: Well, I think I've, I've Wednesday off-work now, but I'll probably have to make way, make, make, make way back down to, to trim on. The, if, nothing to get, if nothing else, you get new clean underwear, I'll have to go back. <laughs> <way>. <laughs> Too much information there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll have to leave it
1: there. Dick, listen, brilliant stuff, and good luck for the rest of the season. Thanks so much.
3: All right, Tim. Thanks very much. Loads
1: more GAA action, Murph Gaelic football, that is coming up this weekend. Any chance of as much drama or any of the storylines that we got?
6: Uh, well, the prob-
1: well, there are no provincial finals, so uh, maybe not quite as dramatic. But I think I'm also would- asking you: Are there going to be any surprises? I guess which doesn't really make any sense.
6: Okay, there well, be surprises. How are we going to know? How would I possibly know? Yeah. Uh, well, the four qualifier games are Donegal against Leash, uh, and then there's a triple header in uh, Croker on Saturday: London against Cavan, Galway against Cork, and Meath against Tyrone. And there could be a few surprises there. I actually give Meath a bit of a shout against Tyrone, so we'll see how that one develops. But the All-Iron hurling quarterfinals are Kilkenny against Cork. Uh, yeah, and the All-Ireland Champions are the curtain raiser so that all of their fans can get back to, Bru- back to Nolan Park for Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> uh, that's apparently why they're playing at 2pm, not 4pm. Goldwyn Clare is the main event in Thurles on Sunday. A
1: lot of football going on at the moment, Ken. Um, we did talk about Sky BT earlier on, but we'll hmm. talk loads more football with Eamon Dunphy and Richie Sadler yeah. on Thursday night I mean, the Social in
5: Dublin. There's transfer rumours going on. I mean, today's, <clears throat> the reports seem to be, well, certainly the reports in Spain have Gareth Bale agreeing to join Real Madrid. Uh, maybe by the time we're talking to, uh, to Eamon and Richie on Thursday, some of these things. Rooney to Chelsea is another one that keeps cropping up. Manchester United interested in Fabregas. And it's possible that one or two of these things might have actually fallen into place uh, by Thursday.
1: I must say a big thank you for all the interest in the show on Thursday. We haven't been out and about for a while, so it is uh, really nice that so many people want to come out. And we do apologize to those that we couldn't fit into the venue this time around. But we will be out again soon enough, so you'll get the chance to have a bit of crack with us. And we are going to put that show up on Friday also um, for anyone who's not there. So looking forward to that also. That's pretty much it. For us, I think, do follow us on Twitter at Second Captains. Uh, you can email us, editor at secondcaptains.com.
5: Thanks, Murph.
6: Thanks, On. Thanks, Ken.
5: Thank you, and um, thank you, Carol. Thanks, guys, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> going Is that? That's the second time it's gone
2: off. They never go home, they never got home, they never got,
5: got home, those, those guys.